Welcome, everyone, this morning. Uh, especially warm welcome to all of our visitors this morning and some old friends. My name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege uh, to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, this morning, since it is Easter, we're on hiatus from our business as usual, which is usually just to move through books of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we'll return to that next week. Um, but for this morning, even though one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would be a terribly appropriate text for Easter, uh, I thought we would look at something a little bit different. And so this morning, I actually want to look at the book of Revelation, chapter 1. If you brought a Bible, you can turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you will find one in the pew in front of you. They're the black-bound ones. Um, and if you use the index at the very front, you can find Revelation. It's also the last book in your Bible, so right before maps and indexes, you should find the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 1. The book of Revelation, as its name implies, is a book of visions. In fact, it's one of those books in the Bible that has somewhat of a reputation. Uh, people are generally familiar with its existence, uh, and we tend to think of, um, you know, dark and strange pictures of the end of the world. But the first revelation John receives in the book of Revelation uh, is not about the future. It's a present revelation. It's a vision of Jesus himself. Now, one other thing I want to add before we look at the text is that this book is composed decades after Jesus' ministry, decades after his death, burial, resurrection, decades after the first Easter. In fact, at this point in early church history, John, our author, is the last remaining living apostle. He's the last of the disciples that Jesus appointed. Each and every one has been killed for their testimony of Jesus. In fact, there is a raging persecution of Christians going on in this time. The reason why Revelation is written, the reason why these visions are given to John, is because times are so dark and desperate. And so the last remaining apostle has actually been banished by the government, to a small island, the island of Patmos, and it's here that he receives this vision. And before we read this text, I want you to, with me, just think of where John is at in his headspace. Exiled. The church without its leadership, going through a time of difficulty and persecution. The future as a whole seems questionable. Maybe he reflects on the early days just months after the resurrection of Jesus, where Peter stands up and proclaims that Jesus is alive and 3,000 people respond and become Christians. Maybe he looks back on the days when Jesus was present. John was so close to Jesus. He was in Jesus' inner circle, not just one of his 12, but of the three that were given uh, front row seats to Jesus' ministry at the Last Supper that we celebrate um, uh, closer to Good Friday uh, in the timeline um, as Jesus eats with his disciples for one last time before his crucifixion, John is actually reclining against Jesus' chest at the table. 
They were close. He was there at the trial before the Sanhedrin. He was there at the cross as Jesus was crucified. He was there early Sunday morning peering into the tomb and seeing the linen clothes that Jesus was wrapped in, but no body. He was there when Jesus revealed himself uh, to the twelve behind locked doors and when Jesus ascended into heaven. But now things are different. Now he's alone. Now, like I said, the future uh, is one of great confusion and question. And as he sits there and as he's worshiping on the Lord's day, alone, not like we are gathered with the church, he receives this vision. Now, I just want to focus um, on, on verse 18 of chapter 1, but I want to read the entirety of this section starting in verse 12. Read along with me. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let me read verse 18 again, and then we'll pray. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's pray. Father, will you fulfill your promise and glorify your Son through the instruction of your word in the power of your Spirit? As we look at this text and as we ponder on who Jesus is, I pray that you would renew in our hearts and in our lives this reality. I pray, Lord, that the resurrection would become more than history today that it would become a significant component, a central foundation of our whole identity. We ask this in your name, amen. Jesus in verse 18 of Revelation chapter one makes three statements. He says that he is the living one. He says that he died, and behold, he's alive forevermore, and then he says he has the keys of death and Hades. And this morning, I'd like to take each one in turn, but it's not hard to miss the central interwoven theme, is it? Jesus is alive. That's the emphasis of this text. That's what John needs to hear in his isolation, in a time of danger and darkness where the future of the church, the future of the mission of the kingdom of God, all of that is suspect and Jesus reveals himself, and he reveals himself as living. Look at that first phrase. He identifies himself as the living one here. Now that's more than just Jesus 40 years later saying, I am alive. Here he says that is inherent to his nature. I am the living one. 
this is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from other religions because uh, every religion has its founder. Every philosophy has its first and formal speaker. Christianity is not the only place where we find the name of the founder in the name of its religion. But, but here, when Jesus identifies as the living one, we find a contrast with other belief systems. In fact, it's not just a contrast when I say that Jesus is alive and others are dead. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is more profound than that. I'm suggesting that, uh, that if Jesus is not alive, there is no Christianity. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, his eightfold path, his way to nirvana, whether he is alive or dead, whether the miracles that he is attested uh, to doing uh, were done or not, the truths that he presents are either true or false. They stand with or without him being alive now. We follow in his footsteps, in his memory, if we are Buddhists. Muhammad, the prophet, lived and died, gave his vision, spoke his words, and that's fine for Islam. That's workable. But if Christ has not risen, there is no Christianity. Because Jesus did not come as a prophet or as a teacher, but as the living one. If he's not alive, then uh, there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ is not written, risen, then we are still in our sins. If Christ is not ridden, risen, then your faith is in vain. In fact, he says, if Christ is not risen, then Christians of all the people in the world are men to be most pitied. The resurrection is the cornerstone of Christianity. Because what Jesus identifies himself as here is a present and living savior, not just a historical figure, not just someone who lived and taught and loved and died. Christianity is not in memoriam. It's an invitation to uh, a relationship with Jesus now. In fact, when we talk about Jesus as Savior, we don't merely mean that in a past tense, past tense sense that what God accomplished in Jesus Christ has saved us. Christianity lays out Jesus, the living one, as the present tense Savior and as our future hope. To be a Christian is to be daily in relationship with and reliance upon Jesus. He is the answer. Not his words, not the example that he has set, he himself. But when Jesus uses the words, the living one here, he pushes broader than this fact. In fact, this language in the Old Testament is how the God of the Bible self-identifies. In Isaiah, it's God himself who says, I am the living one. Jesus here calls himself, in verse 17, the first and the last before there was a beginning, Jesus was. If there were ever an end, Jesus would be. Jesus is the living one, not because he's still alive, but because he is the source of life, has always been the creator himself, God who took on flesh. 
In the Old Testament, this language of the living one is in contrast to idols. Israel lived in the ancient Near East and was surrounded by the religions of the ancient Near East who all represented their gods with stone and wood carvings. And the prophets of Israel constantly made a contrast between the uh, idols of the, of the nations around them and the God that they served. And it was this contrast. Our God is alive. You worship things of stone. Uh, you worship things of wood. And we need to understand here, okay, even in the ancient Near East, we might think of them as a... Uh, as a um, an earlier people. We might think we know better. We might think idolatry is not an issue for us today. Or, if you read up on the ancient Near East, you may think that the critiques of the Jewish prophets are wrong to criticize because, and this is my point, every Babylonian, every Canaanite, every Philistine who had one of those idols sitting on an altar at home didn't actually believe that that stone statue was their god didn't actually believe that that piece of wood was the thing that would save them. It was representative. But the prophets of Israel in the Psalms and in Isaiah, they critique that worship because it so rightly reflects reality. They say, you worship a God and just like that idol, it has a mouth, but it cannot speak to you. It has ears, but it cannot hear your prayers. It has hands, but you're the one who must carry it from place to place. The great critique of Israel's prophets was we know the living God and you worship the gods that are not. And the truth is, even in our modern day and age, even with as many of us may mark ourselves as unreligious, as atheistic, worship is ingrained in our bodies as creation. There is something in life that you hold as ultimate, as primary, as central. It's easy to discern it. It's the thing that you say, if only I had, then everything would be all right. It's the thing that you say, I have to protect this because if I lose it, life loses all meaning. It's the thing that you lean on to fix and to help and to supply all of your needs. Even if you look at the gods of the ancient world, they were represented in wood and in stone, but the things that they worshipped, the things that laid behind that, they're relatively modern things. Sex, money, success. But the problem with all of those things is that they're created things, not God. They cannot hear our prayers. They do not love you. Not one of them came to live and to die in your place. Not one of them hears when you cry. Jesus, he's the living one. He's the one who hears. He's the one who knows. He's the living one. Jesus is alive. If we understand that this morning, if we take hold of that, for those of you who are Christians, is this what your Christianity looks like? Do you follow in the footsteps of Jesus or do you walk with him? Do you hear the words that Jesus spoke or do you hear him speaking? Do you trust in what Jesus has done or do you lean on him daily? Jesus is the living one. The second thing that Jesus says here, he says that I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
We can't see this in our English translations this morning, but the grammar of that little phrase, I died, is super strange. It's, I became dead. Okay, that's not something you'll ever, ever hear anyone else say in truth. I became dead, okay? We don't even hear I am dead, right? That's not something that's generally said. It doesn't convey any information. It's too late for words at that point. But what I want to draw your attention to is when he says, I became dead before we get to, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. This is saying that the living one died. The obvious and most significant question is why? You see, Jesus came, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, Paul tell us, even Isaiah, Jesus came with a purpose. He didn't just grow up, he wasn't just born and then began to see or to think or to hear and to teach, he was sent. And like every sending, there's a mission. Like every mission, there's a purpose. And Jesus' purpose, the one that he points to throughout his ministry, is to die. About halfway through walking alongside his disciples, preaching the kingdom of God, he begins to reveal to them where he's headed. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be crucified. In fact, we may think it was Judas's betrayal that put Jesus to death, or the decision of Pilate, or the Roman centurions who nailed him to a cross, but Jesus says in the Gospel of John, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. Jesus came to die, and the reason is because of us. If you follow the thread of the Bible all the way back at the beginning, God creates and there is life and there is goodness and there is beauty, but there's no death, not at first. It's not until our first parents, Adam and Eve, choose, like we talked about in our catechism this morning, their own path, their own way, independence from God. And with that sin comes the consequence, which is death. Jesus came and he died because we are dying. Jesus came and he experienced death. And wrap your head around this. This is another unique aspect of Christianity. Every religion has to deal with the reality of suffering because it's just that present in our life, right? Maybe you've even struggled with the existence of God on just those grounds. How can there be a God when this? Every religion has to deal with the reality of suffering, but Christianity alone doesn't just present a solution to suffering, but a God who willingly suffered, who became human, who bore the weight and the cost of what it means to be human, who hungered and thirsted, who was despised and rejected and betrayed, who endured the pain and the suffering and the mocking that comes with his crucifixion, and who died. If you understand that, it'll change the way you see your suffering because you'll start to understand that everything you go through in your life as a Christian is filtered through the hands that bear the marks of crucifixion. 
because you'll start to understand that if God can use the horrendous and horrible reality which is death and the greatest crime humanity has ever committed when God comes in flesh presenting a way of love and a revelation of who God is and we crucify him in response. It's that moment in time that God says, this is what I'm using to bring about redemption, to bring about salvation. Jesus' death wasn't because he deserved to die, but because we do. When it says here that Jesus became dead, he came to die. He came to die in our place to deal with our sin and deal with our guilt. As Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The German pastor Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. Our death for his life. One of the things we learn from this little phrase here, I became dead, is the tremendous love of God. Who takes a human, uh, a human population that has rejected him, that seeks to live independently, that is distracted by other things, and instead of just crossing his arms and saying, when you're ready to be saved, you know where to find me, he came to find us. Instead of saying, here is a way that you can set everything right, he said, here is the way I'm going to set everything right. And he entered in, and he bore those sins, and he paid that penalty. And notice, he's not just the one who died, but he says, behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, I know that all of you don't generally use the word behold, unless there's any live-action role players out there or Shakespearean performers. It's not really a word in our language, but it's not hard to see what it does in the sentence. It's the tada, right? It's the draw your attention. It's the look at this. That's what behold literally means. I died, but behold, I am alive and alive forevermore. You see, the cross of Christ is essential to Christianity. Paul, when he came among the Corinthians, said, I have one message for you. I preach one thing alone, Jesus Christ and him crucified. But without the resurrection... It's meaningless. Like death always does, it would leave us with mystery and no truth. It's an unpenetrable veil, but Jesus is alive and that changes everything. Jesus identified himself as being the lamb that would be slain for the sins of the world. He says that his death in some way takes every wrong you've ever done, takes every evil in the human heart, takes every act of rebellion against God on himself and deals with it, pays for it, potentially through forgiveness, removes it. But how do we know that that has happened, the resurrection? If the cross was the transaction, the resurrection is the receipt. How do we know that God has received Christ's sacrifice on our behalf? Because Jesus is alive. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning and you struggle with condemnation, this is why Paul says in Romans, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus is alive. Because every single sin, past, present, future, paid for, removed in the body of Christ as he hung on the cross. 
he is alive forevermore. And then the last thing he says here is that he has the keys of death and Hades. That he has the keys of death and Hades. Now, once again, we have this picture language here, this idea of keys, but you don't have to think very hard to understand what it means. It has to do with authority. He views death here as a door, and he views the abode of the dead as a place behind a door, and he says, I have the keys to that room. I'm the one who, as he'll say in chapter 2, can shut and no one can open, and can open and no one can shut. You see, in Christ's resurrection is not just evidence of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice, it's also victory. Jesus is labeled in the New Testament as the one who has conquered death. And the spoils of war is the authority that comes with it. He has the keys of death and Hades itself. Now this is things that John needs to hear. Because death is all around him. Because death seems inevitable. In fact, maybe the death of all those who follow Jesus is inevitable. But here, John learns uh, that, that in Jesus Christ, in a in certain sense, he's invincible. In fact, notice what he says back in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. The fear of death is a significant thing, but I think we forget about it in our modern American lifestyles. There are times and places in human history where death was just such a part of daily experience, we were aware of it. And as I was reflecting on that this morning, I was thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, we're so much better at medicine, and we're so much better at hygiene, and we've got these things figured out. And I found myself saying, so people don't die as much, right? Which may be true if you talk about in childbirth or in their young age. But the amazing thing about death is that it is consistent with every generation, with every revolution in science. With every move we have made, death is still present and inevitable. Just across the park here, they just tore Bonnie Watson funeral parlor down. Did you know that until the day it was torn down, that was the longest standing business license in the city of Seattle? Because when you're in the business of death, business is good and it's constant. <laughs> the real problem we have in our modern lifestyle is that we've gotten very good at hiding death. In the 14th century, if your grandmother was dying, she died in her bed in your house. If your mother was giving birth to twins and the twins didn't make it, it happened in your home. But now we've conveniently deported the weak, and I'm using strong language here, hospitals are a good thing, but they're a hidden thing. Hospice is a good thing, but it leaves the care of the dying to others. Nursing homes are a good thing, but we've set our every, every experience and occurrence of death at a distance. But I would suggest to you, even if you aren't aware of the fear of death, it reigns over your life. It impacts your decisions. And remember, this isn't just the fact that at any moment life could be over. 
if death is what it appears to be in human experience, if it is the end that it seems to be, then the significance of life itself is at risk. Because death is an eraser that erases all meaning. And you go, well, yes, I can still leave a legacy. I can still make a mark. But when all are dead, who will remember? Who will see it? Who will praise the building you built? Who will uh, read your biography? Who will catch the liner notes on your album? Even the marks you may make on this planet, the great artifacts of history, our planet is dying. All of the solar system is in flux and we're wondering what's happening and we may be able to find relief in the fact that the timeline is long. But if death is death and that's all there is, then the significance you strive for, that you long for, it's not real. But if Jesus has the keys of death and Hades, it changes the game. Like I said, it changes for John very particularly his own fear because he knows if his death comes, it comes at the appointment of the God who controls all things. Not a moment earlier. And when it does, it transforms here because he has the keys to both death and Hades. It transforms death from an end to a transition. One that for the Christian is marked by the embrace of the God who died for us and the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy that was prepared beforehand for you. It's not a leaving home, but a homecoming. But we need to understand that this doesn't just speak of hope. It also speaks of judgment. When Jesus says he has the keys of death and Hades, he's not just saying he can let a couple of his friends into the club. He's saying he determines the meaning of all lives. He's saying that he will stand and righteously judge all human beings. How do we know that? That's a claim you've probably heard on the streets of Seattle. I'm the one who will judge all humanity is not hard to say, but how do we know? Paul tells the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 that God has appointed one man to judge the living and dead, and he has demonstrated this appointment by raising him from the dead. He holds the keys of death and Hades. And because of this, what you do with Jesus Christ determines everything, because Jesus determines everything. Now, that can be a struggle. That can be hard. We can try and wrap our head around that and go, but what about mercy? But remember, this is the one who died. The mercy is already established. It's already promised. It's already presented. It's being held out to you this morning for the first time or again. Christ has died and risen. Will you take that sacrifice? Will you receive forgiveness? It is open to you. But Jesus is also the living one. The one whom all people, dead and alive, will stand before. And he holds the keys of death and the keys of Hades and the keys of hell itself. If Jesus is dead, you should not feel threatened. 
you should not feel worried. You should not feel concerned. He's one more teacher in history, one more light that may shed, uh, you know, may help you see things as they are, one more way presented to you that you may or may not walk down. But if Jesus is alive, he is Lord. And I know those are strong words if you're not a Christian this morning. Let me tell you this, if Jesus is alive, everything you know is wrong. And that is the best news. Because the truths that we tell ourselves, my hand's in my pocket or I would have made air quotes, the truths that we tell ourselves, we continue to repeat the mantras that we live by, they don't work, and we know it. Humans are hope creatures, and it's amazing how much we can be dissatisfied when we cross the horizon and just look up and find another horizon. But can you stop with me this morning? Can you look back? You see, the consequence of sin is not just death at the end of the road. It's regular and consistent one-to-one decay. When we live independently, it wreaks havoc on us. It wreaks havoc on our neighbors. It wreaks havoc on our world. And our own stories bear the marks of that. Both the marks of our own sin and the marks of the sins of others. But the good news for us this morning is that Jesus is alive is that death is not the end, is that God can take things and through that path of crucifixion bring about resurrection, that God can even take the things in your life that seem dead and decayed and even destroyed and through Jesus Christ bring life. Jesus is the living one. The Bible even says as we gather this morning, he is present with us. He is readily available to us. He hears our prayers and answers them. He's just as willing and able to save you from your sins today as he was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is the one who died and behold, he lives forevermore. God made a way back to him. He didn't just draw it on a map. He didn't provide an instruction manual. He bore the way back in his shoulders that were beaten. He reached to humanity with hands that bore nails for crucifixion. He paid the way for your presence in heaven. And he offers it freely. And Jesus is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, which means there is hope. And Revelation can be a dark book. Not just dark in the sense of obscure, but dark in the sense of intense. But the purpose of this book is the inevitability of victory. When Jesus says that he, to John here, holds the keys of death and Hades, this is almost 2,000 years ago, and the war is over. There may be skirmishes now, there may be battles, there's reality going on, but the victory is assured. In Jesus Christ. He already holds the keys. He's already conquered the castle. He is already King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is alive. Let's pray.
Father, the truths of our text this morning is why so many Christians over so many centuries have willingly gone to their death with peace on their brow and with love in their hearts, even for their enemies, even for those who were putting them to death. When John is reminded of these things, an unquenchable hope is rekindled in his heart because he knows that Jesus is alive. And for us this morning, our circumstances are probably unique from one person to another. Our difficulties can probably be laid out on a scale of with a point system from one to 10. But there are some things that are true. We are sinners. And by our own evidence, if we'll just look at it, we cannot save ourselves. And another truth is that you sent Jesus to die for us, to deal with that disparity, to pay the full price. As Isaiah calls the people of Israel, come, eat bread, drink wine, buy from me without price. There was a great cost in our salvation, but it's been paid. And so it's freely offered to us, received through trust and surrender. And I pray, Lord, for those that are Christians this morning, that that surrender would be renewed this morning because you are alive. Because if we can trust you with our eternal state, we can trust you with today. If we can trust you with what happens after death, Lord, we can trust you with our life. Because if you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, while we were the very enemies of God, Christ died for us. If that love is true, then how will you not give us all good things? How can we not trust your wisdom over ours, your rules over ours? How can we not willingly and freely offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is a reasonable response to what you've done in Jesus? And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of hope. That we wouldn't succumb to worry or to fear or anxiety about the future, Lord, but that we'd be able to look beyond our own funerals, beyond our current problems, all the way to the consummation of all things where righteousness and peace rolls down the mountains like rivers and Jesus rules forever. I pray for those this morning who are not yet Christians, God, and I ask that you would help them to uh, see who you are and that where they have questions this morning, they would turn those questions into pursuits because you say, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And that's demonstrated in the fact that you came to find us when we weren't looking. We thank you for this day as we worship, Lord. I pray that our worship would be consummate to the truths that we've talked about, that we would praise you as the one who is alive, the one who has solved the greatest human problem, the reality and the overwhelming reality of death, and the one who holds the keys. We pray this in your name. Amen.